Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week, we're out and about on Highways Voices as I visit the Smart Mobility Living Lab in Woolwich in London. It really enables us to get a deep understanding of the way that the actual traffic is moving within an urban environment. And where I say a deep understanding, that means recording the locations of all vehicles, not tracking them individually as part of that, but actually understanding manoeuvres that are taking place starting to build up a a scenario database of what might happen in terms of events and really getting sort of down into the the core levels and layers of why certain traffic incidents occur. We learn all about the important work and the value of collaboration to all the lab's members as it makes a real difference to the way we travel. We're with the Woolwich. That's one for those of us over 50 there, folks, on today's Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations, the Transport Technology Forum, ITS UK, LCRIG and ADEPT. So a great chat to come from TRL's SMLL in a moment after we've caught up with Adrian Tatum and stories that have caught his eye on our website. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has placed to continue his work to clean up the capital's toxic air. As new City Hall data shows major improvements in London's air quality since 2016. And further significant improvements expected for 2025 and 2030 onwards. Over the last seven years, Londoners have experienced significant reductions in both nitrogen dioxide and fine particle matter. Elsewhere, work to prepare Powys roads for the up-and-coming default 20-mile-an-hour speed limit will begin this week. On September the 17th, the Welsh Government will introduce a default 20-mile-an-hour speed limit on restricted roads across Wales. Restricted roads are generally those where streetlights are placed no more than 200 yards apart and are usually located in residential and built-up areas with higher pedestrian activity. The move will see Wales become the first UK nation to introduce a lower speed limit following in the footsteps of European countries, such as Spain, where 30 kmh speed limits is already in place. And also this week, future generations of self-driving cars should learn the language of cyclists to help them safely share the roads with bikes, new research has suggested. Human-computer interaction specialists from the University of Glasgow have highlighted the need for new systems in autonomous vehicles capable of replicating the complex social interactions between human, car drivers and cyclists on UK roads. Researchers study the many ways drivers and cyclists directly and indirectly communicate with each other in real-life situations on the road. Their findings form the basis of a new series of recommendations on how connected and autonomous vehicles should behave safely around cyclists in the decades to come where drivers will be less actively engaged in their journeys. We are Highways News, the only place you need to go for everything you need to know. Remember to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Details are on our website where you can sign up for our daily emails. All the news to your inbox every lunchtime at highways-news.com slash subscribe. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer, quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. From software-as-a-service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too, find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. 
A few weeks ago, I went to a fascinating Transport Technology Forum working group event at TRL's Smart Mobility Living Lab, and the event was so good, and what went on in the location was so interesting, that I wanted to share it with you. So I popped back and caught up with three of the team there. We'll hear from James Long, Head of Technical Consulting, and Director Joe Evans in a moment. But first, let's hear from Thomas Tomkin, Head of Network and Infrastructure, who started by explaining the control room we've got a series of screens um that's displaying uh, what our infrastructure is basically relaying back to the control room so where i refer to infrastructure we have a series of over 300 cameras relaying back into the control room which we can do some really clever things with so we can run object detection type technologies which can determine positions of vehicles classify those vehicles be able to send out cooperative messages via our V2X infrastructure to vehicles that are capable of receiving those types of messages. We can also provide that data to simulation providers so they can actually recreate actual scenes within a simulation environment. You're also seeing a virtual reality experience which allows us to understand what the human-machine interface might be between different types of new technologies within the transport sector. We also have a loop into our UTC system, which is operated by TRL software. So we have our own UTC scoop software technologies, which we use in earnest to understand what the traffic type levels are, are doing within the Smart Mobility Living Lab, but also using our iRoad software as well, which is a useful tool to be able to put out to various clients that can then consume the data that we're seeing on this control room in an easy to understand type format in a way that they can feed that in. It's interesting. A lot of what you've talked about, I can imagine someone listening to this who works in a local authority and in a control room says, well, we've got that. We've got that. We've got, you know, 300 cameras or whatever. So what's the clever bits? You you talked about like object detection, for example. What are the clever bits that are going on top that are taking it from something that has existed technology wise for at least 20 years into something that is looking into the future? And it really enables us to get a deep understanding of the way that the actual traffic is moving within an urban environment. And where I say a deep understanding, that means recording the locations of all vehicles, not tracking them individually as part of that, but actually understanding manoeuvres that are taking place, starting to build up a, a scenario database of what might happen in terms of events and really getting sort of down into the the core levels and layers of why certain traffic incidents occur, understanding what causes people to take such actions on the road, interactions between vulnerable road users and other vehicles. And then once we've started to build up that scenario database, we can then feed those into simulations and be able to understand what what people are doing. One of the wonders of technology is the fact that we don't all have to be in the same room for this interview. So while I'm sitting here with Tom, James Long and Joe Evans are on Zoom with us today. James, uh, do you want to pick up and add to what Tom's been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And it was a fantastic description of the the technical facilities that we have in place. And your question was one of how do we go above and beyond the systems that are already in place alongside local authorities. And I think one of the important points with this is that we recognise that a lot of those local authority systems are absolutely fantastic and they've got control infrastructure in a similar way. 
but they also have a really, really tight operational remit, which means that they are very, very focused and constrained as to making sure they're doing their day job. How do they make sure that they can keep the network moving, that they can bring new movements in and so on? So one of the activities that we enable organizations to do is look at representative infrastructure and tweak and change that without disrupting those existing day-to-day operations. So whether that's working with strategic roads, whether that's local highway networks or something different, it's about how we enable organizations to test their widget, integrate with a wider set of systems, perhaps try out some operational processes, but don't detract from what's happening on the day-to-day basis within those busy environments, within those busy highway authorities. So it's important for us that we enable them to experience the systems, the capabilities, try before they buy, before they expose it to those operational processes. So why Woolwich? We've been fortunate enough to work with the Royal Borough of Greenwich, as well as as other local authority partners for, for some time. And the Royal Borough of Greenwich and also the London Legacy Development Corporation at our site north of the river, up at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, have both put mobility and innovation at the absolute heart of their own societal and economic growth. So we've seen fantastic major transport schemes like the Elizabeth Line or Crossrail as was being introduced, which totally transforms the ability for people to come and go into this area. And particularly in the case of Royal Bay of Greenwich, we've worked with them on a number of occasions in the past around different types of trials of new technology. They've always been very forward thinking, very much leading the way as to how a public body can start to adopt new innovation as it goes through. So you may remember way back when, when we were looking at things like Project Gateway of automated pods up at the O2. In that environment, they were a partner in that program. And as such, it became a really, really valuable partner to have in terms of locating ourselves where we are. And it means that critically from a public road environment and a real world testbed perspective, we can work with those local communities. We can work with the local environment to understand the placemaking function associated with lots of transport technologies and new modes. So they've been a really, really forthcoming partner as of the London Legacy Development Corporation to recognise the value that this can start to bring. And Joe, what difference is it between working in the middle of one of the biggest cities in the world compared to the proving grounds that we know and other places where testing takes place in much more controlled environments. I think that's exactly the right word, controlled. And that's what's so exciting about the testbed here is that there is no control associated to it. So we are right in the heart of a very vibrant community, which is living and breathing and going about its daily business. And we are really about trying to understand how do you apply either a a piece of technology or a business model how does that look in the real world because when you when you get something out into the real environment it's very different to testing it in a very contained space so the whole value of having something that is alive means that you're able to really see what happens when different people interact with it in different ways um, and how different sorts of um, opportunities arise with different types of uh, different types of people different types of weather and a whole collection of different things. And then all of those variables mix on a daily basis. And there is no way of controlling that mix of variables. And actually, it really gets to um, an understanding of what happens when something is living and breathing. There's no fence around it, no padlock. It is an actual alive environment. And um, what, therefore, have you maybe learned that you weren't even looking for? 
one of the best things that we've learned is that life happens regardless. And all the things that you aren't expecting to happen absolutely will happen. You know, one day we'll get fog, one day we'll have rain, one day one of the cameras will be covered in snow. And one day we've had people rollerblading backwards down the high street in balaclavas. Um, The whole purpose of being here is that the things that we've learned are that life happens and it's really unpredictable. It's a a really interesting point. I mean, we've, we've been between building this and operating it. This has been happening for about five years now. When we started, COVID wasn't a thing. We've had major, major transport shocks and changed the way that we use all the road space and so on that um, fundamentally changed the environment for some time. But we've also had other things that have been little mini shocks, little changes that have emerged during that time. So things like e-scooters weren't a thing when we envisaged this five years ago. But it's one of those trends which have, despite the fact they're still not legal on the streets of, of Greenwich at the moment, we're still seeing a, a very substantial number passing through on a daily basis. And this starts to change the way that different road users interact. It changes the way that we design infrastructure, the way that we need to understand those different behaviours. So it's those sorts of evolutions that are happening on such a regular basis if we just think about the transport modes themselves before we even begin to start about understanding what's happening in the city dynamic more widely, what's happening economically, etc. So it's that constant evolution is something that we, um, we keep a, a pace of. We can't control everything. What we can't control, we measure. So it's about understanding those events and changes. Tom, what other things have you learned in the time that you've been here? I think following on from what James and Joe were saying, that one of the most amazing things is around what we've what we've seen outside and more specific to the Woolwich location that we're at is how a whole transport system can literally change overnight. We've seen that firsthand back last last year when the Elizabeth Line station opened at Woolwich. And although it's only approximately 100 metres away from the existing station and the DLR, the modal shift in terms of where the movement of people were going has literally turned on its head and it has caused not necessarily great problems, but it has really changed the way that the dynamic of the town centre really works. And you can really see that, like I say, overnight, change that happen and of course there's been all sorts of planning over the years by TFL by Greenwich to account for that but I think until you actually see it taking place in the real world and how people react to it you can't really plan for how it really looks. And what you've learned with all the data and the rich before and after data I presume can be used not just in this country but around the world for understanding planning for some of these big infrastructure projects that are being put in elsewhere or thought about elsewhere. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's another another string to be able to provide that lessons learned, how to implement these types of technology, what you would wouldn't do again. And yes, like you say, the, the rich data sets can be provided. And you know, the world's almost really our oyster in that that regard. Can we do virtual testing, for example, in the States using our 3D models that we have and all of the live data coming into there, being able to validate a simulation system? And then once that's ready to, to test in the real world, can they bring that over to the UK and test on the, the streets of Woolwich is not beyond the realms of possibility. 
I'd just like to add to that as well. So one of the the really important elements here is that we work with a lot of different organisations across the sector, across the whole mobility ecosystem, who are perhaps developing and validating their solutions with us in, in our physical environment. But they're taking that capability and they're deploying that in all different locations around the world, actually. So we've taken real efforts to make sure that we can characterize the results that they're getting for testing. So even if they're testing on a mini roundabout in Woolwich, we're able to say, what is it about that mini roundabout that represents a particular type of result? So if you're deploying here and testing here, we can help understand those results elsewhere. We know that on our relatively short network of 24 kilometers, we've got about 89% of the UK's road junctions covered. It's a hugely impactful element around that testing to say, what have I understood there and what would that mean for where I deploy ultimately? That's James Long from the Smart Mobility Living Lab and we'll pick up our chat in a moment after we've heard news from our podcast partners. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations, ITS UK, Elkrig, Adept, and the Transport Technology Forum. A reminder, if you work for a UK SME, you can get a high-profile platform at Europe's leading Intelligent Transport Systems Congress next month, thanks to a unique partnership of leading supporters of the UK transport technology industry. The British Pavilion at the ITS European Congress in Lisbon is being hosted by the Transport Technology Forum, supported by Elkrig, the Department for Transport, Innovate UK, the Department for Business and Trade, and ITS UK. Participants on the pavilion have a cost-effective way to participate, providing an opportunity to showcase their innovations in road transport technology on a global stage. There will also be the opportunity to make connections and network with peers from across the continent and beyond, find potential business partners and meet industry experts. The Department of Business and Trade will facilitate introductions with key stakeholders for the participants exhibiting on the UK pavilion throughout the three days of the exhibition. Transport Innovation Minister Jesse Norman is to deliver the first Intelligent Transport Address on 17th of May at the Intelligent Mobility Design Centre in Battersea. The address is a new event for the industry where the Minister will set out the government's priorities for transport technology and the future of the UK's transport system. His address will be followed by a panel discussion exploring the future of transport across the UK. Network Rail, the IPROW, which is the Institute of Public Rights of Way, and ADEPT have been working closely together over the last several years to agree a memorandum of understanding and provide guidance on the procedure for level crossing orders. The aim is to improve working practices between Network Rail and local highway authorities where public rights of way and railways meet at level crossings in England and Wales. ADEPT is currently delivering three regional webinars for local authorities and network rail staff to disseminate the agreed procedure for level crossing orders. And I mentioned Elkrig a minute ago, the local council roads innovation group has appointed Claire Noble as its new business administrator. Claire previously worked as an administrator within the fire and security sector. Her responsibilities included booking an intruder alarm and CCTV services with commercial and residential customers. In addition to raising purchase orders and invoices and sending out 
out renewals, Claire was also a key contact for customer queries and was responsible for ordering security equipment. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now let's go back to Woolwich and Smart Mobility Living Lab. Interesting that we've been talking now for well over 10 minutes and apart from a passing reference to the Gateway Project, driverless, the autonomous vehicle work has not been focused on by you. Now, you speak to a lot of people and they seem to think that SMLL equals driverless vehicles, but actually that is coming through to me now as a very small part of what you're doing here. I'm glad that's an observation you've made. It's it's one of the things which, while we're, we're hugely proud of the work that we have done around connection automated vehicles and connection automated mobility more widely, we've had some, some fantastic projects which have wrapped up in the last week or so. One called Serve City that we did with Nissan, which is all around using automation in complex urban environments. But for us, that's that's probably a third of our work, roughly. We do a lot of work in the intelligent transport system sector with organisations like Inoptic developing their solutions in our environment and then looking at how that gets applied more widely. We work with a lot of people providing data platforms around asset management, people like Gaist, for example, looking at that kind of data quality piece and how you start to understand the asset better doing lots of work with connectivity providers. Micromobility has been a really interesting area. I mentioned e-scooters earlier. We worked with Tier last year who were looking at how they really look at their parking requirements and how they would work best with local authorities um, to make sure they're deploying appropriately. We worked with them to validate their approaches. So there's a whole range and raft of different organisations who, again, are coming to work with us, deploying elsewhere, that there is definitely life well beyond CAM as to how we do this. James mentioned that, you know, we've got a, a huge ecosystem of people who are involved in sort of product testing, business development testing, a whole collection of different types of capabilities. But I think what's really interesting is, is our innovation community, which is a membership community. That group shows how diverse the sort of future mobility and future transport system space is, it starts to look at the sort of far reaches of that ecosystem, all the way from automotive manufacturers down to cutting edge tech startups who've got apps or who've got new different types of bits of cutting edge technology, all the way across to major bus operators, to people like National Highways, and really starting to see that the the complexity of the future of transport landscape is sort of represented within the Smart Mobility Living Lab. And that community sort of helps us to create that intersection between those different disciplines. And it's at that point that we get some really exciting innovations and some really exciting sort of problem solving opportunities by really starting to look at how do you bring together people who are working in insurance to with people who are working with cutting edge technology with people who have been building vehicles for the last 150 years. And when you get those people in a room to talk together, suddenly real world problems start to get real world solutions. And that membership community not only helps them, but also helps us to really understand what are the challenges that we're likely to face as we move forward into what this sort of new uh, sort of future transport landscape might look like. Is it the fact that because, you know, you mentioned uh, Unoptic, you mentioned Gaist, uh, I've run a story recently about Grid Smarter Cities starting their curb management platform within a stone's throw of this building. Is it that these companies are actually having to spend money, invest money on being part of the Smart Mobility Living Lab 
Does that mean they are more likely to actually want to see tangible benefits than they maybe would do if they were just being part of a funded program by the DFT, for example, where they can do a little bit of a pilot, they might be paid to do a few bits and bobs. And so, to be honest, if they don't gain anything out of it, well, they haven't lost anything. Yeah, I think I think what's really interesting is that by being a part of the community, you're actually accessing a whole load of organisations that you wouldn't normally get a chance to sort of engage with. Like I say, the, the, the sort of picking up from um, an insurance company to an automotive manufacturer to a new tech developer and putting them all in the same room to talk about the same challenge actually means that you're really starting to improve your own business process and your own product development cycle because it, it, it is influencing those innovations in a less linear fashion. It's about innovating sort of at that intersection where things become completely new, where you're developing new things. But by being a part of that group, actually, you're able to influence and engage in what the future insurance system might look like, what the future automotive vehicle might look like. So there's a combination of those two sides as well. It's, it's about drawing from the experience of those organisations, but also about being able to influence and impact the way that the future is developed and changes. Tom, one of the things that I've heard you say before is the phrase failing fast you're not going to mess around uh, doing something that's going to take forever and then not actually come up with uh, any benefit at the end yeah and that's where our infrastructure really comes into its own we've obviously got highly connected infrastructure much more connected than most cities around the world but what that enables you to do is integrate your particular product within our infrastructure area where we have that highly connected capability. And like you say, the word fail fast, we can then determine very quickly how well that product performs within the environment it's intended to be used in and be able to apply all sorts of different parameters to it. For example, reducing the amount of bandwidth it might have available to it or understanding what different types of weather patterns might have an impact on that, which can only really be done in a real world situation. And I think especially true to that is in radio type applications where types of buildings you simply cannot recreate on a, on a test bed, basically, or within a lab. And often there's very unexpected results into how reflection of wireless signals might be rebounded around a cityscape. And that's where you can really understand the true performance metrics of a particular product. So not only to a product developer, but for example, to a city that's considering implementing this type of infrastructure, so they can get an understanding as to what their design requirements might be as well. And finally, I've got to ask you about this because you hit the headlines, the SMLL, a few weeks ago. But the one thing that all the press picked up, I presume it was one report that other journalists then sort of rewrote for their own papers and publications, but was saying that within 20 years, it will be the end of the traffic lights. Would you like to actually now have the platform to explain what you actually said as opposed to uh, what you were quoted as saying? Absolutely, Paul, yes. Um, and yeah, I've had a fair amount of stick around the... Uh, <laughs> The sweeping statement but however you know it it, it does get the, the headlines what i was referring to in there was when we were discussing around the uh, sur city project which we were doing with nissan and how cooperative infrastructure can really help movement of vehicles within a city so at the moment we're doing non-safety critical messaging to vehicles 
you know, for example, saying lane ahead blocked or lane around the corner has roadworks on it, and then providing that as an advisory type message service. As that conversation went on with that particular journalist, we then moved into what could that mean for for particular junctions. So we were talking around about messaging when the signal might go green, and then that that allowing a car to either approach a, a vehicle more slowly using closer, to which then, yes, we could then say, you know, ultimately, a number of years down the line, once everybody's adopted this type of technology, and we are making safety critical decisions because of the latency, we're able to potentially remove traffic signals or have a different way of controlling traffic at particular interchanges, basically. There was also a very big caveat into, I have no idea how you would get pedestrians across the road safely using this type of technology, but there are things, you know, that potentially could be done if you used quite an extensive imagination, I would say. I would just say that I suppose hats off to the journalists for picking something that meant that that was hitting the front pages. If maybe you hadn't said that, then the wider project wouldn't have made it into the paper at all. So, you know, you get you get positives and negatives in all of this. Uh, we're out of time for this one, but this has been a fascinating conversation and there's so much more. We've only really scratched the surface at the moment. So all I can say to Thomas, James and Joe is thanks ever so much for your time on this uh, Highways Voices, and we'll revisit our project-by-project basis, I guess, uh, in the future and really dig deeper into some of the amazing things you're doing here. It'd be a pleasure to share more in the future again. Thanks, Paul. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for talking to us, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. That's it almost for now, but before we go, we've just got time for... Adrian's Accolade. And my accolade this week goes to the team working on the major revamp of the M25 Junction 10 at Wisley in Surrey. They are hoping to create a new sensory garden for autistic adults nearby at Stone Pit Close in Godamin, Surrey. National Highways, Balfour Beatty and other supply chain partners have joined forces with the National Autistic Society and social enterprise, the Glasshouse, over four days to work together on this very worthy initiative. Thanks to donations from the supply chain and the work of 80 volunteers, the garden and its outdoor areas at Stone Pit Close will be developed with a shared aim of enabling autistic people to explore their senses in a safe and stimulating environment. And go on, Adrian, what does that make them? Worthy winners of my accolade this week. Well done to the team at Junction 10 for winning Adrian's accolade. And that's it for this Highways Voices. I'm away next week, but we'll hopefully feed your interest with a Highways Voices special for you, summarising what's happened at the Transport Technology Forum annual conference. I'm actually recording this bit of the podcast from my hotel room in Leeds and I'm looking forward to the next two days and sharing some bits with you. Catch you soon on Highways Voices. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 